following comes to you through podbean.com in the artist realm with Sylvia Stein. Here we go. Wednesday everyone and uh, good morning and welcome to in the artist realm I am author in the author Sylvia Stein and welcome to our show today we have um, we're bringing back uh, tool number two workshop uh, which we had discussed on the book by Roy Peter Clark writing tools 50 essential strategies for every writer <clears throat> we had discussed um, going over the workshop questions at the end. We did um, tool one, beginning sentences with subjects and verbs workshop the week and a half ago, and now we're doing tool two, uh, order word for emphasis. And I hope that next Wednesday, I'll be able to do activate your verbs, tool three workshop, and be passive aggressive tool four workshop. So, because those were the uh, podcasts that I had done, and I wanted to do a follow-up show to discuss these uh, issues with you guys, or the questions, because I think it helps when you give writing tips and working on the, the different questions to help you. So, um, I wanted to give a small recap of the order word for emphasis on this book. Um, if you haven't gotten a copy of it, I... Highly recommend it. It is, um, it is a great book. It gives a lot of insight into the different uh, ways of writing uh, by Roy Peter Clark. He was one of the authors that Stephen King, uh, Stephen King, sorry, highly recommended on his book on writing. Stephen King on writing discusses this book and this author by uh, Roy Peter Clark, whom, as I have said before is a writer who teaches and a teacher who writes, is vice president and senior scholar of the Pointner Institute, and he's one of, he, uh, which is one of the most prestigious schools for journalists in the world. And he has written or edited many books about writing and journalism. And he has spoken about the writer's craft on the Oprah Winfrey show before when she used to have her show, NPR and Today. So uh, he's highly, highly, Okay, sorry for the technical issues that we had. Um, as I was saying, this is a great book, uh, Writing Tools, 50 Essential Strategies for Every Writer by Roy Peter Clark, tool number two, order word for emphasis. I will give a small recap. If you have not gotten your copy, you should. Uh, I highly recommend this book, as I was saying. It is a very essential, and uh, I highly, I think it's an important book to have. Um, and also... Um, it is available through Kindle, and you also, um, I think he updated it to the 55 Essential Strategies for Every Writer, I believe. So you might want to check that out as well, but I have the first one, or the one that uh, came out, I believe, this is his first one on this uh, Writing Tools Strategies for Every Writer. 
which was published in 2006 and it uh, it has excerpts from the glamour of grammar copyright uh, 2010 by Roy Peter Clark so it includes uh, several you know different elements in his book all together so you might want to go out and get it and today as I said without rambling on which I tend to do is uh, tool two order word for emphasis we're gonna focus on that today I'm gonna give a small recap and then go into the discussion questions um, he says here on his tool two which is page 15 on the paperback if you have that place strong words at the beginning and at the end and here he goes into the example of strunk and whites the elements of style he says strunk and whites the elements of style advises the writer to place empathetic words in a sentence at the end that's what they advise an example of its own rule the most empathetic word appears at the end application of this tool will improve your prose in a flash then he continues for any sentence the period as they said acts as a stop sign that slight pause in reading magnifies the final word an effect intensified at the end of a paragraph where final words often adjoin in a white space in a column of type a reader's eyes are likewise drawn to the words next to the white space white space those words shout look at me so here as we had discussed before he gave some examples and he said he continues on by saying putting strong stuff at the beginning and at end helps writers hide weaker stuff in the middle in the passage um, here we're gonna go into the he says um, he discusses the putting strong stuff at the beginning and end helps writers hide weaker stuff in the middle begin he says begin with a good quote hide the attribution in the middle and end with a good quote so here um, he gives an example of a uh, news a news report that was given taken from the Philadelphia Inquirer in which there was a tragic uh, accident due to a plane crash and it had a, a tragic tragically it uh, killed a senator four pilots and unfortunately because it hit an elementary school it it also uh, took the lives of two children so so for them to make it empathetic because it was such a tragic news that came out they started with uh, this is the way that the the, the writer to make it more empathetic he wrote flaming and smoking wreckage tumbled to the earth around Marion Elementary School on Bowman Avenue at 12:19 p.m. but the gray stone building and its occupants were spared frightened children ran from the playground as teachers herded others outside within minutes anxious parents began streaming to the school in jogging suits business clothes house coats most were rewarded rewarded with emotional reunions amid the smell of acrid smoke so it is a still a tragedy but it says here in the first paragraph the writer chooses to mention the um 
to mention the senator, but because in the first one that they read, it, it does talk about seven people had died and Heinz, which is the person in the plane, John Heinz, U.S. Senator, um, they, the helicopter collided, uh, his plane, uh, his private plane collided with a helicopter. And unfortunately, this led to four, his four pilots passing away and also it, it also injured and it hurt and took the lives of two first grade girls that were playing outside when that when that hit, unfortunately. But it says here, on most days, any of these three elements would lead the paper. Combined, they form an overpowering news tapestry, one that reporter and editor must handle with care. What matters most in what matters most in the story? The death of a senator, a spectacular crash, or a tragic crash? The deaths of children. It's kind of going into more sarcastically here. In the first paragraph, the writer chooses to mention the senator and the crash up front and saves elementary school playground for the end. Throughout the passage, subjects and verbs come early, like the locomotive we discussed in tool one and coal car of an old rail railroad train, saving other interesting words for the end, like a caboose. Consider, he says, also the word, the order in which the writer lists the anxious parents who arrive at the school in jogging suits, business clothes, house coats. Any other word weakens the sentence. Placing house coats at the end builds the urgency of the situation. Parents are racing from their homes dressed as they are because they've just heard a tragedy. So, of course, that's, that has to be very overwhelming and sad for, for any parent. Putting strong stuff at the beginning and end helps writers hide weaker stuff in the middle. In the passage above, notice how the writer hides the less important news element, the who and the when, Laura Marion Township yesterday, in the middle of the lead. This strategy also works for attributing quotations, which is in the next example. It was one horrible thing to watch, said Helen Amadio, who was walking near her Hamden Avenue home when the crash occurred. It exploded like a bomb. Black smoke just poured. Begin with a good quote. This is what Roy Peter Clark says. Hide the attribution in the middle. End with a good quote. Some teachers refer to this as the 2-3-1 tool of emphasis, where the most empathetic words or images go at the end, the next most empathetic at the beginning, and the least empathetic in the middle. But that's too much calculus for my brain, he says. Here's my simplified version, and this is for you all, you know, for anyone, because it can, can get confusing, as I did when I first read it. Put your best stuff near the beginning and at the end. Hide weaker stuff in the middle. Amy Fusselman, this is another example, provides an example with the first sentence of her novel. This is Amy Fusselman, author who wrote The Pharmacist's Mate, and he reads this quote. Don't have sex on a boat unless you want to get pregnant. That's what she writes. The most intriguing words come near the beginning and at the end. So says you don't want to have, you know, you don't want to get pregnant, then don't have sex. She's very blunt about it. And then the next one, the most intriguing words come near the beginning and at the end. Um, and then we go into Gabriel Garcia Marquez uses this strategy at the opening of 100 Years of Solitude to Dazzling Effect. One of the greats, Gabriel 
Gabriel Garcia Marquez. He says, 100 years of solitude to dazzling effect. Many years later, as he faced the firing squad, comma, Colonel Aureliano Buendia was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. So here he's discussing, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, where everything comes, the intriguing comes in the beginning and at the end. There's something tragic happening. He's facing a firing squad, but then he's going back to a memory of his father. So there's another example. Then this is another one that's uh, uh, very, another uh, one, uh, another author, Alice Siebold, who writes a lot of stuff that is uh, emotional, traumatic. You know, she wrote The Lovely Bones, and this is another one of her memoirs, Lucky, that she wrote, and this is what it says. Uh, this is what Rory Peter Clark mentions in this example. What applies to the sentence also applies to the paragraph, as Alice Siebold demonstrates in this passage. This is author Alice Siebold. In the tunnel where I was raped, a tunnel that was once an underground entry to an amphitheater, a place where actors burst forth from underneath the seats of a crowd, a girl had been murdered and dismembered. I was told this story by the police. In comparison, they said I was lucky. That final word resonates with such pain and power that Siebold turns it into the title of her memoir, Lucky. So this is what Roy Peter Clark gives us another example of this. Then the to these tools of emphasis are as old as rhetoric itself, he says. Near the end of Shakespeare's famous tragedy, a character announces to Macbeth, the queen, my lord, is dead. This astonishing example of the power of empathetic word order is followed by one of the darkest passages in all of literature. And Macbeth says this in his soliloquy that he, he reads, he says, she should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools, the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage. And then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. The poet has one great advantage over those who write prose. He knows where the line the line will end. He gets to emphasize emphasize excuse me emphasize a word at the end of a line, a sentence, a paragraph. We prose writers, says Roy Peter Clark, make do with the sentence and the paragraph, signifying something. So here, as I said, the recap is the order word for emphasis. He gives the example of the journalism piece written by the writer Larry King from the Philadelphia Inquirer about the tragedy and about the overpowering, uh, you know, they formed the overpowering news tapestry and then the putting stuff, uh, strong stuff at the beginning and then helps writer, writers hide weaker stuff in the middle. Then he gives, of course, he gives an example of beginning with a good quote, hiding the attribution in the middle. And then he gives the example with Amy Fusselman, who's very blunt about what she says. And then Gabriel Garcia Marquez memory even though a tragedy is happening to him, he chooses to 
remember a distant memory when his father took him to discover ice. And then Alice Siebold, who has something traumatic happen, and she uses the word when a policeman talks to her about what happened to the other girl they found in the underground um, and, um, and the tunnel that was once an underground entry to the amphitheater, um, that she was lucky. So she uses it as to resonate such pain and power by turning it into the title of her memoir about she's talking about I was raped a tunnel that was once an underground entry to an an amphitheater a place where actors burst forth from underneath the seats of a crowd a girl had been murdered and dismembered I was told this story by the police in comparison they said I was lucky so here she uses this <coughs> this word to kind of resonate with her memoir about how powerful this story will be. So these tools of emphasis are as old as rhetoric itself. And then of course it ends with the, the, the darkest passages in literature, Macbeth. And uh, here, it, Roy Peter Clark says, the poet has one great advantage over those who write prose. He knows where the line will end. He gets to emphasize the word at the end of a line, a sentence, a paragraph. So here, this is where we kind of went into the order word for emphasis. Now we're going to discuss the workshop. And I'm going to read a little bit about the, <clears throat> I'm going to read the best, some of the two um, <clears throat> speeches that I chose. Um, one by Abraham Lincoln, the Gettysburg Address and the other, Dr. Martin Luther King, and we're gonna study some of the empath empathetic word order that they choose to write when they, when they wrote their speeches. So I'll begin with Abraham Lincoln. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the prop proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. So here, if you look at the first lines, it starts with four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, which was, he says, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. So he starts off very strong with his, you know, with the, what he's saying. And then he goes into, now we are engaged in a great civil war. So it's here. This is something, you know, that's, that's happening in their war in, you know, when, when all the civil war was happening. And then he says, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated, he, he uses these words, conceived and dedicated, can long endure. Can we go, can we fight this war? Will we still be strong? Will we endure? In the end, it says, we are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. 
it is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. So in those lines, he's saying, we're going to go through war. You know, we're fighting a war, but will we, you know, it'll be worth it if we're all together. And for those people that gave their lives so that our nation, you know, America, the United States can live and stand and, and be, be there and be the strong that uh, as strong as it, it was. And this is something that I took, you know, when I read the Gettysburg Address, when I've read it many times, those lines, you know, there's more in the speech, of course, but those lines and those words, uh, conceived, dedicated, endure, uh, a portion of that field, uh, for, for those who gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. So those are empathetic words in the word order forms of the empathy that the the tool two order word for emphasis where you place strong words at the beginning and at the end. And he does because he talks about engaging in a, in a war. We are met on a great battlefield. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting pace, place, especially the second lines that I'm reading, it is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. So it's all uh, strongly tied together to bring emphasis to this speech. And then, of course, we have the great Dr. Martin Luther King, Reverend Martin Luther King, and his I Have a Dream And I'm going to go into the speech in more detail here and, and what he, because it, it, it covers a lot, but we, I want to read the lines that, that, you know, that made an impact and what he was trying to say. And he, and he, and we need to, says, I'm going to read this line from the I Have a Dream. And that is something that I must say to my people who stand on the worn threshold, which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. This is something that I found very uh, a, a, a portion of the speech. Of course, all of it is is a is a, one of the best speeches. And Dr. Martin Luther King was one of the most influential uh, people. And 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 you know he tr he started the you know the movement to for equality for all people for all races. And and uh, we all race you know needs to stand together as one, not as different. We. We, he was uh, he was trying to bring everyone together, and and when he says this, you know, let's do it for the right reasons, not be filled with hatred that we don't we can't see straight, you know, and that's one of the lines that I found, you know, that he was trying to yeah, show here in his speech, and here there's another line. No, no, we are not satisfied and will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am mindful 
But I am not unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulation. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unneared suffering is, is redemption. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that somehow this situation can, can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you, my friend, though, even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even in the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. I have a dream that one day in Alabama, with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of an inter- position and nullification one day right there in Alabama little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers I have a dream today so here it's very powerful and emotional how he goes into the the words that he uses very eloquently very 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 in the heart his his heart this is what his speech came out of him it poured out of him to bring together a nation to try to speak to everyone and to, to try to live in equality, try to change, make changes in the laws that existed at the time with the injustice of, you know, of, of, of ra uh, racial segregation, all of the things that happened. This speech is, is, is you know, it shows a lot of uh, words, strong words that, you know, that he, he chooses. And, and this is why I chose it today because it has so many elements and so does the Gettysburg Address, but especially Dr. King's speech, it goes into different elements of he has a dream and he describes a dream and he says, well, let's not get judged by the color of our screen, but by the content of our character. And he brings up together with this, 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 do this together because this is what we need to do. So that, um, it's, it's emotional as I read it too, you know, it's very emotional. So, you know, these two speeches, you know, are examples of the uh, empathetic word order. And the, and I'm glad that Roy Peter Clark brought this uh, tool too, so we can, you can kind of go into different essays. There's uh, many different authors that have them. There's Maya Angelou, there's, there's different people. And uh, I've chosen Edgar Allan Poe, which I will read in a moment. Of, of, of the example I chose and why I chose it and uh, it, it, in one of the other questions. And you need to, what I would ask you to do is on page 18 with a pencil in hand, read an essay you admire. You can choose one, circle the first and last words 
of each paragraph. Do this at home, or when you have time, you could also write into the show, silstein07 at gmail.com. Tell me why you chose that uh, paragraph, or do it on your own just for to practice the the tool too, which which shows empathy. Excuse me, order words for emphasis, and it it kind of gives you that element of different words and powerful words that you can use. So I hope I, I hope these two examples so far, you know, have brought on um, you know it, it, exactly what what Roy Peter Clark was trying to accomplish in in uh, in his uh, in the essays. Now I chose. Uh, because I'm a writer, I uh, wanted to also choose uh, one that I picked because these were the two given by in the book, which were, were amazing examples. But the the next one I the one I chose was the Poetic Principle by Edgar Allan Poe. So let me read you a little bit of what he says. In speaking of the Poetic Principle, I have no design to be either thorough or profound. While discussing very much at random the essentiality of what we call poetry, my principal purpose will be to cite for consideration some few of those minor English or American poems which best suit my own taste, which upon my own fancy have left the most definite impression. By minor points, I mean, of course, poems of little length, and here in the beginning, permit me to say a few words in regard to a somewhat peculiar principle which, whether rightfully or wrongfully, has always had its influence in my own critical estimate of the poem. I hold that a long poem does not exist. I maintain that that phrase, I maintain that the phrase, a long poem, is simply a flat contradiction in terms. I need scarcely observe that a poem deserves its title only in as much as it excites by elevating the soul. The value of the poem is in the ratio of this elevating its excitement. But all excitements are, through a cycle necessity, transient. That degree of excitement which would entitle a poem to be so-called at all cannot be sustained through a composition of any great length. After the lapse of half an hour at the very utmost, it, it flags, fails, a revulsion ensues, and then the poem is in effect and in fact no longer such. There are no doubt many who have found difficulty in reconciling the critical dictum that the paradise lost, and he uh, puts parentheses, to be devoutly admired throughout with the absolute impossibility of maintaining for it during perusal the amount of enthusiasm which that critical dictum would demand. That great work, in fact, is to be regarded as poetical only when losing sight of that vital requisite in all works of art unity we view it merely at it merely as a series of minor poems if so preserve its unity its to totality of effect or impression we read it as would be necessary at a single sitting the result is but a constant alternation of excitement and depression after a passage of what we feel to be true poetry there there follows inevitably inevitably passage of platitude which no critical prejudgment can force us to admire but if upon completing the work we read it again omitting the first book that is to say 
commencing with the second, we shall be surprised at now finding that admirable which we before condemned, that damnable which we had previously so much admired. It follows from all this that the ultimate aggregate or absolute effect of even the best epic under the sun is a nullity, and this is precisely the fact. So here he's kind of giving his own perspective of what he thinks about the poetic or poetry in general. But he starts off trying to say, be empathetic to some point about minor poems, you know, what he thinks of the longer poems. He gives an example of, of uh, Paradise Lost. Then he goes into the Iliad and the many different points, but he's not trying to say anything negative. He's just giving his own uh, account of what he thinks about the different contradictions in poems and you know, everyone writes different poems, um, you know, and as a matter of fact, with a group of, you know, that I work with, we were discussing the different types of poems and how some of them are punctuated and some of them are not. And, and basically, I use this essay to kind of show, in speaking of the poetic principle, he says, I have no design to be either thorough or profound. While discussing very much at random the essentiality of what we call poetry, my principal purpose will be to cite for consideration some few of those minor English or American points which best suit my own taste. So he right away says, I'm not trying to say this is it, but I'm not going to go into detail, but this is my own assessment of what I think. So I just kind of chose that to kind of show a little bit of the empathy in his essay. But as I said, the powerful essays were the Gettysburg Address, and of course, the, uh, the always the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream. So this was the workshop for today, and you can work on uh, your own essay, circle the first and last words in each paragraph to kind of work on this, you know, on your own as well. And if, like I said, if you want to write in and write, you know, uh, send me an email to silstein07 at gmail.com. You could also comment in the Artist Realm on Facebook page that we have. You could, you know, I'm trying to work on a newsletter for that. But for now, I'm, I still haven't gotten on Twitter, but I do have Facebook and podbean.com. You could follow me there, listen to the podcast. I hope you will download this episode, which, you know, it brought a lot of emotion because it did have, you know, it focused on different pieces, journalistic pieces, which were, you know, dealt with. You know, anything, anytime it involves a child or a newscast that involves a, you know, type of tragedy, you got to be more sensitive in how you discuss those words, which is what Roy Peter Clark was trying to say. And then he discusses the different authors, Amy Fusselman, Alice Siebold, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, and Macbeth, of course, Shakespeare's Macbeth and the different works. And of course, you know, we read the two speeches by Dr. Martin Luther King and Abraham Lincoln's uh, The Gettysburg Address and Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream, and then I ended it with The Poetic Principle by Edgar Allan Poe. Again, this is Sylvia Stein. This is, has been in the artist realm. I'm happy that you could join us today. I really hope you'll download the, the podcast today. It will be available through podbean.com, iTunes, and also Google Play. So please go ahead and join us again, and I hope you have a very happy Wednesday, and I hope in November to bring you more author one-on-one uh, -on -one author, spot, uh, author spotlights for In the Artist Realm. 
And I apologize for the, you know, stuttering today. I had a few uh, moments where I got t my, I got a few tongue twisters today. So anyway, um, again, I hope you all have a great day. Thank you for joining us in the artist realm. Sylvia Stein signing off and I hope you'll join us again. Thank you so much. You have a great day. This was the podcast in the artist realm by Sylvia Stein. Hope you'll join us again. Thank you. <laughs>